Welcome back, folks. You're listening to The Mark Steiner Show right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. This is Democracy in Crisis, and I'm Baynard Woods. And I'm Mark Steiner for The Mark Steiner Show and the Center for Emerging Media. So one of the great things about doing this podcast is we get to have a lot of writers on, people that I we really admire, and, and you know, Shane Bauer and Ron Rosenbaum and Lawrence Weschler, and, and they're usually people, yeah. Emily Bazelon, and they're, they're people from other, other places. And our guest this week is, is a writer here in Baltimore that, you know, I'm almost more excited about than any of those other people who I've been reading all. More excited. Yeah, more excited. <laughs> You're more excited about Dee Watkins than anybody else? <laughs> yeah, I mean, because, you know, back a couple of years ago, like, <laughs> I was editing Dee at, at City Paper, and then, you know, and he was good. But then I read the the cookup when it came out, and it's out in paperback today. As we're uh, so two days ago, as as this is airing, but I mean, I was just blown away. It was like you see someone play a sport or something in college, and then you see them in the pros, and they're a different ball game at all. And it, it you a pro now? I'm trying to be a pro. I feel like um, <laughs> in this game, in this game, you can you can play it until you're 90. So it's a good it's a good game to go pro in. <laughs> That's good. No, I'm teasing you, man. You are good. So we have D Watkins on today. You know, a Baltimore writer, the author of The Cookup, the host of Undisclosed, uh, The Killing of Freddie Gray, the addendums where he talks about the issues and that come up in the other parts of the podcast, editor at large at Salon, where he first sort of started uh, really breaking into the national consciousness with uh, Too Poor for Pop Culture. So welcome to the show today, D. Thank you guys for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be here. I felt like I learned more from both of you guys than I learned in actual college. Like <laughs> being able to listen to Mark and, and watch the way Mark Steiner moves and, and reading your articles for years has been has paid tremendous dividends. So I learned a lot from you guys. So, you know, I'm and still learning, still a student. You know, still a student. Always a student. Never end being a student, right? You know, that stays forever. <laughs> never, never. I try to tell my students that. Never, never, never I mean, stops. that was one of the things when I was like, man, this guy's going to be good. As I, I got in your car with you some night and, and on the dashboard and stuff, there's Joseph Mitchell. And then there's the Norman Sims long-form journalism book stuffed down in the seat. And, like, I'm like, man, he's woodshedding and really studying this stuff. And, like, well, that's part of, that's part of your whole theory of young people in the city is uh, reading. And the love of reading and pushing that idea about how to grow depth and brain power and human power and their own kind of sense of development, right? Yeah, like so many young people, you know, they're just not thinking. And I try to tell them that almost any and every bad decision I made was directly connected to me not being a thinker and not being able to think. Um, and you know it's 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 rough though because we don't really get we don't get we don't pretty well we don't get any get zero support from North Avenue. Um, you know some people that they like to take they like photo ops, but it's not support. North they Avenue don't. is the school uh, the school headquarters yeah. in Baltimore City. But every every high school and a lot of middle schools in Baltimore City are reading the, even the B side to cook up or both. And um, a couple of teachers from this is different high. First it was one high school, now it's two high schools. Where teachers told me that students actually steal the books, so it's like you know they're not they're not stealing the crucible. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and the beast side we forgot to mention is is these other book, really great Baltimore essay. So the beast side, referring to the the east side of town, where where these yeah, from? Both good books, really good books. Thank We've you, talked thank about you. in the air before, really good books. You know, and I think that, it, that this is the trick bag that we put people in, in not just Baltimore City, but I think across the country in, in a lot of public schools, especially in 
many urban inner city public schools and a lot of rural public schools that are isolated, we do the same thing, and which is we do not teach children how to think critically. They're not taught that at all. It's rote. You take a test. It's what you learn. Pass the test. Fail the test. Take the standardized test. And your school ed- education is wrapped around that. But one of the things I've discovered when you work with especially poor kids in America and poor kids in the inner city is that they don't have a vocabulary. Mm-hmm. They can't think. They don't think deeply because to think deeply, you need language. If you don't have language, you can't think deeply. You can't express how you feel. And so we put them in this kind of straitjacket for life. Mm-hmm. And, that, I mean, that's, that's the crime to good, me. It's good business. You know, we think in words. You know, no limited words, limited thoughts. <laughs> but I don't, know if, I, don't think, I don't know if it's so much intentional. I, uh, no, but think about it. I mean, look how many businesses thrive off of ignorance. I call them ignorance tax. Business thrive off of that. You know, that guy who's, who's paying $100,000 for 2,000 Mercedes, it's an ignorance tax. That person who don't know they can get a loan from a bank thinking they have to go to a petty loan company because that's in their neighborhood. That's a tax. The food, you know, the way we live and survive and move, all of the different things that plague inner cities, all of the, 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 the evil, destructive businesses that only exist in inner city neighborhoods are there because they know the people in those neighborhoods, they don't know anything else or they don't have access to anything else, so they can tear them apart limb from limb. I know some people that paid, like, I know so many people that overpay for so many things, mm-hmm. right? You know, these pawn shops. Pawn shops are just here so people's houses can keep getting broken into. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they just, their stores set up, their stores that, like, encourage breaking and entering. Like, it's just, all of these different things are, are bad. Like, they're just, they're evil. And um, and we don't we don't have the power to be able to shut these these organizations down but we do have the power to rewire ourselves and to be able to like think and move in a way that's more um you know for people to get what they deserve i feel like anyway so let's back let's back up one second and set this up for our our listeners out there at home that we we have a lot of things going on here in in baltimore this week that touch on what we're saying and and one is the that it's the second now anniversary of of the death of freddie gray and we also have nationally, we've been with Democracy in Crisis doing a lot of, of writing about uh, weed coverage for, for 420. And so we have this whole thing of what, what we're talking about, what you guys are talking about now with education, with this ignorance tax. All, a lot of this centers around this war on drugs that has just been one of our country's fundamental policies, I think, for the last 30 years. In the column this week, I talked to Roger Stone, who worked for Richard Nixon, who's now coming out against Jeff Sessions on the drug war. And you have these old-time Nixon people saying we were wrong. He told me he has two bongs shaped like Richard Nixon and that we're wrong and that it's precisely for this, that it's a way for them to keep uh, tabs on people. And, I mean, Ehrlichman, John Ehrlichman, Nixon aide, told Harper's Magazine, uh, Mm -hmm. bomb for Harper's, that the reason they did this is because they couldn't make it illegal to be a hippie. They couldn't make it illegal to be black. (laughs) The blacks and the hippies. They're going to demonize us and arrest us. Right. So all of these things are kind of coming together. So this is part of this is sort of what we're we're getting into talking about. And, and so sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted to put us uh, sort of where we're going a little bit on track for our, our listeners here. Now, listen, this and know the room is full of it's like blacks and hippies uh, in the room. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's what this is like. We're airing for the Nixon's enemies in here. <laughs> that is the place we're in now. I mean, this uh, war on drugs has not ended. Um, it's kind of cool to note that Canada is considering becoming the second country on the planet to legalize marijuana completely. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Um, Shout out to Canada. Uruguay, Uruguay, that was actually run by a former revolutionary member of his underground, the Tupamaros, became president, who refused to have live in a mansion, lived in a little apartment. He, he got marijuana legalized in Uruguay and now Trudeau in, in Canada. But Portugal as well, right? Portugal, they're not. It's not legal. Oh, all drugs are decriminalized. Yeah. Decriminalized. Like, yeah, right. You know, right. Holland is not legal, but you know, right, right, right. You know, when you think about Freddie Gray, two years ago, when he was when he died as a result of being arrested and beaten by the police, no one has been held accountable for his death at all. Um, probably will never be held accountable for his death. We have to really contemplate where we've been the last two years. You know, what has happened, I mean, and where we've come to. I mean, it's, uh, you know, Freddie Gray, look, I always say this. We have another thing for the folks who are not from Baltimore here. There's a thing in Baltimore called Port Covington. Port Covington is this gigantic space, empty space bought by uh, the man named Kevin Plank who owns the stuff that's probably on a lot of your bodies right now called Under Armour with that little logo that I don't wear, that many people do wear. (laughs) So he bought this plot of land and got a billion dollars from me in money. Nobody in the inner city of inner cities of Baltimore, no working class people, it didn't benefit Baltimore at all, not the poorest people in Baltimore. If it doesn't, then to me it's not worth doing. And so just think about if Freddie Gray had grown up in a economically, racially mixed community called Port Covington, mm-hmm. for argument's sake, he'd be alive. He wouldn't yeah, be dead. Absolutely. Right? And you know, when you said no one's held accountable, I think, I feel like we're held accountable, like as citizens, because we get to sit back and watch our system not work. So we know this is something that we can't even subscribe to, even though we have to pay for it. Like, you know, I'm probably as left as they come, but when it comes to taxes, I don't want to, I don't want to pay for that. I want, like, I don't want to pay for this school system. I don't want to pay for these police officers. Like, I don't want to pay for it. So I feel like, I feel like as a citizen, when we watch our system rob this young man of his life and then, you know, the cops to take a victory lap and just make a joke about it by trying to um, sue Marilyn Mosby, that's crazy. Like, it's just it's horrible. And, I mean, one of the things I worry a lot about is we sort of thought the legal system would fix it until we had the trials. It didn't fix it. We put a lot of weight on the consent decree, which is still holding on, but we, we have a Justice Department now headed by the guy who said that he thought the KKK was okay until he found out that they smoked pot. Um, <laughs> and so we, we can't have a lot of hope in, in that. And, I mean, I, I do believe that the police commissioner here, Davis, has some interest in making reform in the department. But if you can't do it when you have a supportive Obama-era Department of Justice and thousands of people in the street screaming and protesting for justice. Now you don't have anyone in the street and you don't have a support of DOJ. What is he hearing now? All he's hearing is the FOP yelling in his ears. And that's the loudest voice probably that's coming to the police department or the police unions because we're not out on the street. We're not out clamoring for police reform. And I feel like well, a huge problem is that white activists now have switched over to hashtag resist from hashtag Black Lives Matter because it's not as hard for them, it's not as hard for us to have to question ourselves, question our own privilege, question where we are when you're thinking about Black Lives Matter. And it's just, oh, Trump is a, a easy, convenient sort of demon for us. But us, the, the white people, need to really look very hard at the Trump within us and need to really think about we can't just replace uh, th- these issues work together and we can't just forget about what's been happening. 
I ain't think the system was gonna was gonna fix it though. Like I just don't believe. I don't know why if I'm jaded or if it's because I like I think all of these people are silly. But like I was upset, you know, at the at, with the you know the, the outcomes of the trials like everyone else. But I wasn't shocked because I just don't. I don't think it works like that. Well, I mean, I see. I think that it, as I say with many things, I think it's complex. <laughs> Right. I true, mean, true. I mean, I didn't think from the beginning that these officers were going to get convicted, because I thought that the cases were pretty were not very tight, mm-hmm. and I don't just you know blame Marilyn Mosby, who was the state attorney for Baltimore, for the reason why it didn't work. But the cases weren't very tight; they were really hard to prove. You don't. We still to this day do not know what killed Freddie Gray. Everybody has their speculation. He, stepped the, he leaned on his back when he arrested him and, and, and did his spine. Then he got hurt inside the van. The, a a, a uh, dissenting coroner who didn't testify said that, that no, it wasn't in the van. It was, in, it was on the street. We don't really know what killed Freddie Gray. We do know that it was common everyday police procedure that hurt Freddie Gray. To throw somebody to the ground, put your knee in his back or her back, to hold somebody down like that with your foot on their neck or whatever, that's common police procedures. That's what people do all the time. And one of the right? biggest tragedies, I think, is what could have changed from the trials is to stop that. If they would have gone forward. So so for our listeners, they, if you don't recall, they went. we went through and had trials of four of the officers. The first one, Porter, was ended in a, a hung jury. Then there were three uh, acquittals at, at bench trials in a row. And Miller, the initial arresting officer who initially had physical contact with Gray without probable cause, as the prosecution was was alleging, they wanted that to be charged with assault. And I think had they gone forward with Miller's trial, they could have at least tested that theory that if you're a police officer and you touch someone and you don't have good probable cause, you're going to be charged with assault. That could have been revolutionary. That could have saved the next Freddie Gray. That could have changed things tremendously. And they, they dropped it before they got to ever test that theory. Now, Nero, the other arresting officer, was found not guilty on that. But that was because Miller testified, I'm the one that touched him, not Nero. And we, they really, that's the one thing I really hold the state's attorney's office sort of responsible for is not at least trying that theory. Oh, my God. Their case was so poor. They did a horrible job. I love Mosby. I love what she stands for. Um, I think they're great. I just don't. I just don't think they did a good job. So many people who witnessed it wasn't able to come to court and testify and tell their stories. What I feel like is that charging the cops was something to calm the city down and guaranteeing that a conviction wouldn't happen was something to let the police know, okay, we're still on the same team. <laughs> Everybody felt like they got like a win in that situation. But like from the people who I talked to from that neighborhood, from um, some of the things that, you know, hosting hosting this podcast, I've learned, you know, I've actually had a conversation with a knife, you know, with a knife expert. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like people who like, you know, this old thing that's going on in the city where like you're locking these kids up with these knives, but they sell the knives at every gas station and every 7-Eleven. And the knives, they're not spring assisted knives. You have to actually pinch it to open it. They're not, they're not switch blades, you know? So you're like, they're trying to, so many people are sitting in over the jail right now because of that. So it's simple stuff like that, that just it makes me lose total faith in all of these different systems that we're supposed to subscribe to. And I just, I get salvation from just working with everyday people, young writers and young artists and young kids. I don't think that resistance, black lives, anything that's trying to change this system that works perfectly 
it's I just you know I'm I'm super jaded. Like I just I gotta work with everyday people that's trying to get from point A to point B. I gotta work with artists who never had a chance to really understand how the professional side works. I gotta work with like students in high schools and 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 and, and young people who just really 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 want to make it. Like I gotta work with them. I can't. I can't work with the government. Like it's, it just don't work. It doesn't. It doesn't work. Except that, man, when you look at our history, I mean, the only reason things work the way they work now is because people pushed. Mm-hmm. I just came back from Alabama, and um, where we were producing this documentary with Martin Luther King's barber, and all these other things opened up. I mean, and one of the things that really hit me about Alabama was that Alabama had is is the state that broke the back of legal segregation in America. Between Birmingham, Alabama, and those hundreds of young people who were arrested and went to jail, to the Montgomery bus boycott and what happened to Montgomery, to Selma, to Anniston, where, there's, where, the, where the Greyhound bus was, was torched and blown up, the Freedom Riders before that, to Lowndes County, where black people armed themselves and said, we we're going to resist, and we took over the government and elected their own sheriff. And, I mean, so but what I'm saying that to say is that it was a resistance movement that changed that. Mm-hmm. And you can't always see what resistance movements do when you're in the middle of it because it looks like nothing's changing. But the nature of resistance movement is long term. Right. It's not an overnight battle, right? And I think that, that, that it's, it takes a combination of forces. I mean, it takes a combination of what, what uh, people like Dominique Stevenson and, and uh, Eddie Conway and other guys and other people are doing down at Tubman House at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where Freddie Gray was first arrested, creating an alternative community. It takes that. You know, it takes people in the streets resisting. It takes people in city council who are pushing for different things, the young people who are just elected. It takes, it takes uh, D. Watkins's working with young people across the city to help them kind of raise up their consciousness. All those things flow together. That's resistance. Yeah, I would never discredit anybody's work. I'm more talking about, like, how I feel about the system. You know, I, I just feel like, you know, I just, I, I just, it just leaves a horrible, disgusting taste in my mouth. It's like Subway sandwich. That's <laughs> what this system is. So wait, they're not a, they're not a sponsor, are they? <laughs> no, but I don't, I don't eat Subway. With Jared, okay. Jared knocking on the door. What's up, man? <laughs> so you're on undisclosed, and and I I was just listening. You were talking to one of my favorite people, uh, Harold Perry, who who was who witnessed what happened to Freddie Gray, who lives across the street from there. Witness both some with his eyes, which are very failing now. Uh, he's partially blind, and with his ears, and heard, and, and with his wife. So, tell us about what this this show is. I, I mentioned it, but but give us a little rundown. What what's undisclosed, and and how's it going? It's going great. Hundreds and thousands of downloads every week, and you know a lot of people are checking in. Um, some angry police supporters, and then like some. Some other people who just didn't even know, like you know, what happened. As they don't know what we know here in Baltimore, because you know we're here, so we would we would hit with it in a different way. And um, you know, I hope that people would listen to, who listen to this podcast would just have like a like a like a different perspective on what the black experience is, or what the poor experience is, or or, or how we see the system versus um. You know, like with Michael Douglas and them be doing in movies. Like we just, mm-hmm. <laughs> I haven't met that cop yet. So, um, and it's interesting because Rabia Chowdhury was the started it, and it, it sort of she brought the uh, Adnan Syed case to mm-hmm. Sarah Koenig and for mm-hmm. the podcast Serial, and then they started Undisclosed, which really kind of uncovered some of the evidence that brought Adnan's case back and gave him the the post conviction review. 
that happened last year, last winter and spring. And so uh, this this podcast has had some actual impact on on the legal world in the past. And I mean, what are are you learning anything new about the the Freddie Gray case? Yeah, it's I kind of ties into what Mark said. You know, it's so many things that were in your face that I didn't really catch because I was so in the middle of it. I was so in the middle of it. So it was so many, like, you know, when you sit back and you read, like, you know, working on this podcast, um, you know, you, you're reading tons of documents. You're looking at all types of footage. You're talking to all different types of people. You just have the time to just really pick something apart. Maybe um, some of the some of the talent and some of the time and, and some of the skills that some of the people who were trying to prosecute these cops didn't really have or, you know, couldn't really tap into. But you just sit back and, you know, I listen to new episodes and I, you know, I read on Saturday nights. I listen to the episodes on Sundays and then I host the show on Mondays and then it drops to Thursday, like the following week. And I had to say every Saturday night and every Sunday, I just get more and more depressed. It's crazy. Like I'm, I'm going to need like a hug or something after, after we finish filming the episodes, because it's like so many people are never, ever, ever going to have a shot. And they don't even know. They don't even know that it's like 10 things against them. When you, you're a little kid walking down the street, you're like, wow, I'm a kid walking down the street. I should, you know, I should be worrying about looking both ways. You got to look both ways, but you got to know that, you know, if you get killed by a police officer, it doesn't really matter. If you get killed by somebody in your neighborhood, the clearance rate for homicides is what? Under 15%? Well, I think it's, it's maybe more, up to 30 almost now, maybe. Yeah, it's, it might have gotten yeah. higher than that, but yeah, it's low. It's low. So, like, you know, you got to worry about that, but then you got to know that there's no type of restaurants or, or food spots where you can get healthy food from that's, you know, that's really accessible. There's no culture of education, and, 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 and you know, the people who really want to help you on the school tip are so boggled down with work and administrative BS that they can't really tap through, so you want to hurt that way, and it's like all of these different things are coming at you, and you don't even know you don't even know you're fighting. It's like, you know, what if what if this whole time, you know, I'm trying to, you know, I'm in competition trying to see if I can, you know, check my phone more than you and Mark, right? You don't even know that we're in the competition. So, I, you know, I get the opportunity to win this little game I created. And you guys, are, you know, you'll come in second and third place. And you're like, wait, it was a race? <laughs> and, I mean, that, when you it's were just a bad analogy, but you know what I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> At first, it almost sounded like the early parts of your, of your book, of the cook-up. I mean, that, that almost could have been you. Not knowing uh, what game was going on at all, how did how did you get to to where you are now? New York Times bestselling author and stuff. From I mean, maybe tell us a little bit about your brother and sort of how how the the arc of how you got here. Dumb luck um, mixed with some work, but like luck and work because you know um, I don't know. Not to switch subjects, I'm gonna stay on yeah, it. Yeah. But I don't know if you guys heard Kendrick Lamar's album. But the last verse on the last song of the last album basically talks about how his whole career, he's he's right now they're calling him one of the best rappers ever. Not now, but ever. His whole career is an accident because the guy who runs the record label that he raps on was a gangster and went to rob the chicken spot where Kendrick Lamar's dad worked. He didn't shoot Kendrick Lamar's dad when he was able to identify him because he used to throw in, Kendrick Lamar's dad used to throw in a couple extra biscuits. So when he came in there all wild and robbed the spot, he let him live. He let him, he let him go. The guy got away, switched his life around, got into music. He signed Kendrick Lamar when he was 15 years old. One day Kendrick Lamar, um, dad walked into the studio, and they start talking about this chicken store incident. And he's like, yo, this dude, life got saved over a couple of extra biscuits. So all of his stuff, this greatest rapper of all time, 
it's potentially a mistake. And it just makes me think about um, not just books like The Cook-Up, but just like so many, like so much of the talent that's coming out of our inner cities. Like so many of us, like our whole story, you know, Carm- Carmelo Anthony and the positive stuff he's doing, it, it would have been very easy for Carm- Anthony, Carmelo Anthony to not be here. Like they killed John Crowder, the from, dude from Zone 18. He was like 17 years old, six foot nine, six foot ten, still growing, hit it to Kansas, Baltimore boy. Shot him because he was jealous of him. A dude shot him because he was jealous of him. So all of that stuff that he could have been a dude that came through and said, you know what, I'm just going to fund the school system in the way that Chance the Rapper did in Chicago. I'm going to give him a million dollars because they act like they don't know how to spend their money, so I'm going to put the pressure on them. He could have been that person, but he got he was he's gone over jealousy. So it's like I got to check myself and, 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 and always, like, make sure that I'm being humble, that I'm, you know, returning them emails and phone calls, building them bridges with them people and try to stay connected with the people who are trying to do things because all of this stuff is an accident. Like, I, I've been through all types of, you know, things in the streets that I write about in the book. And if I would have the wrong person off or underpaid somebody who I know I could have underpaid or took advantage of somebody I know I could have took advantage of, you know, not give out them extra biscuits, <laughs> you know, I could have been a hole in my head too. So it's like, you know, I think about that a lot. That was, that was transformative for me. Um, and then what I try to do as an artist with, with, with the writing and, and the speaking and, and, and the books, I try to, I try to tell those stories, but I try to use those stories as a setup to build a bigger interest for other people who want to tell similar stories, but have different lived experiences. Cause mine is just mine. But it's like a mistake, though. But you got to, you know, it, I don't know. <laughs> you got to make a <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Of yeah. mistakes. It's crazy, you know. Right. I mean, I, but I think that's also part of existence. Mm-hmm. When I look at existence, it's like you're, you're, you're twirling down this hole, and sometimes you get snagged by a limb mm-hmm. or something. Happen, you pop yourself and go, oh, that looks good, and you go after it or it comes after you. I mean, that, that's part of life. I, 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 I think about it, but I never really think about it that deep. And then hear his story. Um, who is a rapper who identifies as a writer, you know, it's, it makes me think of the power of words. When I think about Freddie Gray and think about what just happened, it's not just Freddie Gray. I mean, Freddie Gray has become a symbol. Mm-hmm. But there are dozens of Freddie Grays who have been killed by the police. There are thousands of Freddie Grays who were killed in the streets. You know what I mean? That is something that we face every day. And I think that's Something we I mean, we have to really think about that. I mean, it's like you know, I was thinking about the two sides of this. You know, on the one hand, there's a question of the system and what the system does to people, and how we do not build a city that reflects on the needs of the people in the city to change the end poverty in this town and to change the nature of how people have to live in this city. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, you know, you've got the reality of what's been created by this racist system in this country, this class system in this country that keeps people so oppressed that people look inward to hurt themselves because there's no other place to lash out. Mm-hmm. We have to deal with that. We can't just let it keep happening. You know, it's like the, um, it's like school suspensions, why they shouldn't exist. I mean, and it's what we're doing as a society, almost lashing inward and hurting ourselves. I mean, people, you know, the, the last sort of jab, everyone brings up should the police kill them, their criminal history. And like, you look at Freddie Gray's and, and, they're pretty much all drugs, and there are things like they raided his mom's house. There were drugs in it. They arrested the whole family. He wasn't there. Like, what kind of situation is this that we have a thing where you can have every— I mean, this is the same thing that happened to the rapper here, Young Moose. They raided his dad's house. They blame him on all that. They find a gun on the roof across the street. They blame him for that. They Anything they find anywhere <laughs> nearby, 
Um, and the officer who did that, all of that stuff, is is one of right. the seven who's federally indicted. Yeah, we help, we help with that, you know. We really, we just we just don't work on that. <laughs> but but the, I mean, I'm amazed. So the last thing they said, the police lawyer said, when when the charges were dropped uh, last year against the officers, they said, well, we know now that that when we couldn't say it in court that Freddie Gray was going to re up to get, he'd already sold out of drugs that morning, and he was walking up to re up. And I'm like thinking, damn, man. That's nine thirty, eight forty-five in the morning. I'm asleep in bed. Like, what kind of talent and hard work and stuff are we wasting? The, the dude's up is. I mean, if what they're saying is right, the dude's up and has been working long enough that he's already like, what other kind of worker's been working that hard on a, a Sunday morning? I mean, seriously, like, what else could we do with that talent if we did? I'm totally anti-prohibition all around, but like, if we had given that dude another shot, you know, while I'm a lazy sleep on bed on Sunday morning, he's up working. You know, if what they say is true at all, like to me, that just shows how much we're wasting that could be work that is is really valuable work to to our our society. But we have this this system where we we value certain kinds of of labor and we completely devalue other labor slave, and, and, slave labor. <laughs> yeah. The system eats people like it just eats people. You got to you got to feed it. You got to feed it. It eats people. It gets hungry, and you got to feed it. You need you need people in those jails. You need people to be on drugs and to be in programs. You need people homeless. You need people to you know to go through the system and only be able to get entry level positions. Like you need a certain amount of people to fail. You really, really, you need it. You need it. So when Sessions jumps out there and talks about you know why the war on drugs is is great. Look at history. Look how many people in history. Look at all the cop. You know what would what would all these cops do for work? You know if if if, if drugs was legalized and all of it, the CIA's, FBI, the all the alphabet agencies that chase. Like what would all these people do if we figured out a way to really handle our drug problem in a real way? Who's building the jails? Who's cleaning the jails? The private press. What are all these people going to do? They you know they they can't sit in here and host with us. You know, but they go had to they go had to do something. So it's like, you know, it's just if it's a system that just feeds off of people who don't even a lot of times don't even they don't have a shot. I mean, things get turned their head a lot when you think about it. I mean, I interviewed James Foreman Jr. the other day who just wrote a new book. He's a professor of law at Yale University, the son of James Foreman, who is one of the leaders and founders of SNCC, the Student Involuntary Coordinating Committee. And, you know, it, it, the book took me back to the early 70s. And we forget that in places like D.C. and around the country, in the early 70s, when people were talking about marijuana legalization back then and fighting for legalization back in the early 70s in cities, it was partially the Nixon government who was fighting against it and the federal government saying, no, 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 we got to lock these people up. They can't, they can't be allowed. But it was also the newly enfranchised black political leadership who said drugs are killing our community. They cannot be legalized. We've got to lock these fools up because they're killing us. So this it was a weird synergy between they get too many passes oppression and liberation. <laughs> but it's, but it's, it's, I think it's, it, I agree they but, get too but, many. But passes. it's also it's also to me a weird synergy between oppression and liberation. You know, I mean, the folks who created the oppression and want oppression to exist, the system wants that. They want to lock people up. They want to keep people down. That's the reason there was so much resistance. By, like Justice Man, who became Justice Powell when he got the the the, the, the uh, all the conservative business leaders together to say we got to take this country back because you know black folks are taking it and hippies are taking it and all these other people are taking our country we got to take it back which they started doing in the 1970s. The other liberation part to me is is that many of the warriors who fought to end segregation and for for black liberation 
were opposed to legalization because people saw it as the absolute destruction and death in the community, that poor black folks had no resources to fight it like wealthy white folks did. So, so I'm saying, what I'm saying is it's complex. Again, I'm, I'm, in, I'm into complexity. It's not like a simple thing that this, these people are evil, these people are good, that there's this confluence of events that happens. And now we're mm-hmm. turning around. N- nobody who fought against that thought we were going to end up with mass incarceration, putting millions and millions of black people and people of color in jail. Nobody, nobody who fought against that thought that was going to happen. I think the people who wanted it, like the Nixon, Nixonites and more, did, didn't care about that and were fine with that. So I'm saying that's why I'm saying it's, it's a mixed bag. And now we're here 46 years later, 48 years later, whatever that number is, and we're scratching our heads going, mass incarceration has happened over the last 40 years. Now, how do we change that? You know, people going to jail for drugs. They shouldn't be going to jail for drugs. How do we change that? I mean, you know what I'm saying? That, that's, it's, a, it's a complex question. And, and I mean, let's, let's maybe end up by looking forward with that a little bit. Like, do you guys see any hope now for police reform and some kind of, of – into, you know, police reform in general, any kind of end to mass incarceration or uh, using the war on drugs as a way to sort of terrorize uh, black communities. UD? <laughs> Give uh, us your John just view first. I'm going to get my... <laughs> I'm going to draw my... I'm going to draw my inspiration from, like, um, you know, the people who are more optimistic than I am. I just think that, you know, you can't even get police officers to... Police officers, my whole life, has they have a Trump mentality. They don't apologize. They just don't apologize. You can't even, when they do something wrong, you don't see them jumping out there and saying, you know what, I messed up this time. I shouldn't have done that to you, my bad. Even the story I wrote, the essay I wrote about the cop who um, pulled a gun out on me when I was putting a scooter in my garage, I was hanging out with um, my little homie, um, Nate from the Wire, who um, Nathan Corbett, whose father is a was a, like a hot, like a big ranking cop. His father was a cop, and he told him, and the guy's like, "I don't give a f," you know. And he's like, "Yo, like, you know, like, what's up?" Like, I can't remember if it was me or Nate who said he was power tripping. That's when he really lost it. He got really mad, and it's like, "Yo, you are power tripping." And actually, I pay you. I, you can we can walk we should we can do like a, we can get somebody you know to follow us up and down the street the mark or somebody. The other mark or money to follow us with a camera up and down the street and you know I I bet we can't I can't get a cop to say thank you Mr. Watkins you pay your taxes and that pays my salary I'm honored to serve you like because <laughs> that's what it is yeah. like we can't get them to say that like that's your job like I thank my students who take my classes all the time like yo you guys signing up for these classes and you know I'm I'm your professor I'm here to make sure you're getting everything you need so whenever I need to stop or whenever you need office hours or whenever we really got to flush out why I really wasn't feeling something on your paper utilize that tuition money you you pay for this I don't get it and and for me I mean the the only sort of the closest I can come to hope I'm not I'm not a particularly uh, hopeful person either <laughs> the closest I can come to to anything like that is that you know now that we do have Trump, and you know, last week dropped the mother of all bombs, the biggest bomb that's not in Afghanistan. Right. So, like, now the po- and we have North Koreans. So now the possibility that the state might arbitrarily take white people's lives as well, may extrajudiciarily kill us as well. Then maybe we all now can sort of see what non-white communities have been going through for a long time, and maybe we can all now decide what's worth dying for. If we all might die anyway, we all decide what's worth dying for. 
for ourselves, and then we can struggle along those lines. All right, this has been Democracy in Crisis. Great thanks to Dee Watkins for coming out. I'm Baynard Woods. And this is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show and the Center for Emerging Media. Much love and grim solidarity, y'all. And we go out with a tweet by Ruby Fulton. The fake media, not real media, has gotten even worse since the election. Every story is badly slanted. We have to hold them to the truth. The fake media, not real media, has gotten even worse since the election. Every story is badly slanted. We have to hold them to the truth. The fake media, not real media, has gotten even worse since the election. The fake media, not real media, the fake media, not real media, the fake media, not real media, the fake media, not real media. The fake media, not real media, has gotten even worse since the election. Every story is badly slanted. We have to hold them to the truth. The fake media, not real media, has gotten even worse since the election. Every source badly slanted. We have to hold them to the truth. The fake media, not real media, has gotten even worse since the election. Every source badly slanted. We have to hold them to the truth. The fake media, not real media, has gotten even worse since the election. Every source badly slanted. We have to hold them to the truth. The fake media, not real media, has gotten even worse since the election. And that was our latest episode of Democracy in Crisis. You can hear new episodes of the show, and we read the column every week at democracyincrisis.com. The Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, has been helping its members and its community prosper for the last 80 years. Remember, it's a credit union, not just a bank. belongs to you. Money comes back in the end. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. More information at www.mecu.com.